Section 7 of Gaudium Crucis, A Meditation for Good Friday by Walter Lowry. The Sixth Word, Accomplishment and Duty. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. John 19, 30. Accomplishment. It would not be strange or startling if Dante had found in this word, It is finished, the proof of Jesus' joy and suffering the gladness of labor accomplished, of homesickness relieved. It is certain that St. John perceived this meaning in the saying which he alone has recorded, and we who read it are irresistibly reminded of Isaiah's prophecy. He shall see of the travail of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The Jews and their rulers congratulated themselves that by their subtlety and force they had cut short and ended this man's career. Finished, replied Jesus. His work is accomplished. It is also over. For a man to say my work is over, yet incomplete, is to pronounce a curse upon his life. But Jesus knew that, because his work was God's work, it could not be ended without being finished, and the joy of accomplishment was superadded to the joy of labor done. Jesus knew by faith that his task was accomplished, though it did not so appear to men. And may we not thence draw this comfort, that for every servant of God the end is also accomplishment. Though his strength be cut off in the prime, and his plans perish before they be effected, must we not believe that his service in the kingdom of God, and what else counts beneath the cross, is not merely ended but finished? Even of the believing thief it might be said, though he might not say it of himself, that his work was finished. We are weak. Howbeit the firm foundation of God standeth, having the seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. This confidence of Jesus is an example to his disciples. St. Paul, too, though he saw himself about to be cut off by a violent death, dared to affirm, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. If these words match Jesus' consciousness of duty done, the next words of glad anticipation reflect his joy and the confidence of reward, having also the same basis in the consciousness of moral integrity, conjoined with faith in God's righteousness. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not only to me, but also to all them that love his appearing. St. Paul is very bold in drawing the parallel between his experience and that of Christ. He even suggests that there is a sense in which we may say that Christ's sacrifice was not the last and only offering for sin. For he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and fill up on my part that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake which is the church. And in the context of the passage we have just quoted, he says, I am already being offered, poured out as a drink offering. St. Paul dares to speak thus because he accepted in earnest the cross as the symbol of discipleship, and by the same token he could count upon the crown. St. Paul is not the only disciple that has dared, and rightly dared, to use such words we may not all dare to count so confidently upon the crown, nor with such assurance to reckon our work accomplished, 
too much bowed down by the conviction of failure by the thought of service too late commenced so faintly prosecuted we repeat the words of the psalmist as our own heartfelt cry o lord establish thou the work of our hands upon us o prosper thou our handiwork nevertheless when we see our work tested as by fire and consumed we may still comfort ourselves with the thought that man's failure may be god's accomplishment duty we cannot use the word finished or accomplished except in relation to a definite task a task which is imposed by authority is a duty and the joy of accomplishment is the joy of duty done this word therefore of jesus implies that he regarded his whole life and particularly his suffering and death under the aspect of duty the sternness of duty jesus felt as few men have and because he never had to suffer remorse for a duty shunned he experienced in full measure the joy of duty done the joy of jesus may be expressed like that of any other man in the words of wordsworth in his ode to duty stern lawgiver yet thou dost wear the godhead's most benignant grace nor know we anything so fair as the smile upon thy face it is exceedingly necessary for us to note what place duty held in jesus's consciousness our modern age by ignoring the most palpable facts of the gospel record has succeeded in eliminating the stern feature from the popular picture of jesus our popular art popular religion and even the popular theology depict exclusively the soft traits of tender-hearted sympathy and weak concession other ages have preferred their own partial and unbalanced picture of christ as the impassable monarch as the vindictive judge as the excruciated victim but perhaps no other has done graver damage to the majesty of his character the revival in modern times of the good shepherd as a popular theme in art exemplifies our sentimental notion of christ for what we exclusively dwell upon is the pitifulness of the shepherd who leaves the whole flock to seek the one sheep that has gone astray we ignore the wealthier range of pastoral symbolism which appears in the scripture and in early christian art the question may well be raised whether such a shepherd as we depict would dare attack the wolf whether he is mighty enough to rescue the soul in the valley of the shadow of death this is merely one example among many only a straw but it shows the direction of the wind if men are able to disregard the stern quality of duty in our lord's own consciousness it is not strange that they listen only to his gracious promises and hear no longer the sterner note of his commandments the most exacting any teacher ever uttered knowing themselves no rule of duty they know no sin and having interpreted the father by their estimate of the son they have no fear of god before their eyes this is the tendency of our whole modern age it is the tendency which heine satirizes from his mattress grave when he replied to those who asked him if he hoped in god's forgiveness oh he'll forgive me that's what he's for c'est son métier one who swims with a current cannot know its force one who knows not the good will of god opposing his human will has no experience of the imperative of conscience conversely that man if such there be who knows the will of god yet feels within himself no prompting to oppose it can have no sense of the compulsion of duty this is true also of jesus 
those who with excessive zeal to guard the sinlessness of jesus scruple even to admit the reality of his temptation succeed only in depriving him of an essential human experience essential most of all to the saviour of men the sinlessness of jesus is a dogma of our faith and it is attested by Jesus' own words in the gospel but the same gospels also attest the reality of his temptation and that in a story which they must have derived from jesus himself the temptation of jesus which is related immediately after the story of his baptism depicts in symbolical language a triple experience of the prompting of individual desire which was the direct outcome of the recognition of his messianic vocation the essential fact is that jesus overcame temptation and it is significant that he overcame by appealing to the rule of duty which he found in the scripture replying to every prompting of the tempter it is written this was doubtless not the only temptation he encountered as a man nor was it the last or bitterest of the christ recognizing the reality of jesus's temptation we know that we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all points in the very same way without sin jesus knew sin by conflict with it and by conflict and victory he knew it better than any man can know it by conflict and defeat jesus feared god we can say this in the full sense of the scriptural term for at its highest fear is not the opposite and exclusive contrary of love we may rather say that the fear of god is the closest old testament parallel to the new testament conception of the love of god and faith in god jesus feared god too much to blench from the perfect line of rectitude the fearfulness of duty was at once his guide and his defense the fear of god is the inevitable experience of conscience it is a slavish fear when we hate the authority we are obliged to recognize it is a filial fear when we love it and even in our disobedience commend it to put away from us fear is not to gain in courage but to cast away our armor through temerity jesus feared god and he expressly inculcated this fear in his disciples he means evidently not mere awe but genuine fear when he says be not afraid of them which kill the body and after that have no more that they can do but i will warn you whom ye shall fear fear him who after he hath killed the body hath power to cast into hell yea i say unto you fear him this is a wholesome fear and it excludes every worldly fear which perturbs our peace and frustrates our endeavors hence there is no real contradiction in the commandment which jesus subjoins fear not this last is an injunction which admits of but one exception the fear of god makes us bold when we recognize our wayward helplessness and cast ourselves trustfully upon the intimate personal care of our heavenly father the changes and chances of this mortal life frighten us no more when we are freed from the innumerable fears which it is the whole province of worldly prudence to guard against we find the true guiding principle of life in the fear of god the sense of duty of obligation to do the right whate'er befall is the only possible guide of life god may be guided by wisdom and prudence for he sees the whole but for us who see but in part 
the only wisdom and prudence is to ignore the spacious guidance of profit and expediency and follow in the straight path of rectitude we believe in god's providence in the universe and as a part of this faith we believe that to do the right is to fulfill god's will and to conform to his plan but from the point of view from which man must regard the universe it exhibits no plan which he can surely trace it appears rather as a boundless intricacy it is astonishing that in this maze we should so commonly take for our guide the wisdom of the understanding when by wisdom we cannot compute the remote consequences of any act and by the most far-sighted prudence cannot be assured of attaining even our own temporal profit in our faith in god we have the assurance that the right is also the good for us and for all this is the conclusion of the wisdom of the preacher fear god and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man and job likewise after the most impressive discourse upon god's wisdom and the ordering of the universe makes a sudden transition to the one way of practical wisdom which is obvious to man and unto man he said behold the fear of the lord that is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding jesus walked as the example of men and therefore he walked in man's path and under man's limitations the wisdom which guided him was not the all-seeing wisdom of god infallible in its calculation of expediency but the practical reason with its sure judgment of right this light which sheds its narrow beams only upon our immediate pathway is yet the only light man has for his practical guidance and it is of this jesus exclaims if the light that is in thee be darkness how great is the darkness the temptations which are related of jesus are such as could influence only a noble mind to turn stones into bread to grasp earthly dominion to claim supernatural protection these do not represent the temptations of selfish lust the lust of appetite the lust of conquest the lust of power they were the temptations of the messiah temptations to attain the end of god's evident purpose by diverging from the sober road of right into a plausible shortcut of expediency which promised a swifter issue no one was ever more tempted to fulfill a lofty aim by means not illegal but aside from the plain path of duty no one ever more resolutely refused to leave that sober path therefore jesus for all his zeal and enthusiasm in a high cause cannot justly be reckoned among zealots and enthusiasts he is the more perfectly our example because he displays the simplicity and power of a life led according to the rule of duty he is supremely our example in his death because that was the culmination of a dutiful life it was because of jesus's own solemn regard for duty that he could impose upon his disciples the most uncompromising and exacting commandments he imposed upon them even his cross and the cross is the very symbol of duty the cross excludes every precept of expediency even the obvious expediency of saving one's life the paradox which jesus expresses in word and deed is an absolute one it is denied not explained by those who resolve it into a far-sighted rule of prudence which counsels us to exchange gladly the temporal life for life eternal to seek one's own life the salvation of one's soul 
even in the highest sense, Jesus forbids, and yet life is what he promises. This riddle cannot be solved by any effort of the understanding. How, we may ask, can the individual come to mighty self-realization by the suppression of all claims of self? How can he attain the goal of his own life by self-abnegation, by the renunciation of an independent life aimed directed to the perfection of his ego, by ignoring all that contributes to his personal satisfaction, and by making himself merely a serviceable instrument for the development of others? But in our experience, this inconceivable becomes the actual. It is realized in the man whom the personal life of Jesus takes captive. Jesus woos us to a willing service, since we see in him the one who is alone worthy to rule, and who yet takes upon himself service as his distinctive mark. When his might over us creates the willingness to serve and the power to serve, we have then attained what by no decision of self-interested prudence, and by no concern about ourselves and all that we find within ourselves, is ever attainable. Jesus's repudiation of formalism did not mean emancipation from the law of duty, either for himself or for his disciples. In receiving the baptism of John, he declared, It becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, meaning thereby the formal prescriptions of piety, even where they were not defined by the scriptures. We have to note that Jesus expresses his thought not in the terms of conscience and duty, which are familiar to us, but in the equivalent Hebrew terms of law and righteousness. He says, Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. He claimed to give a purer conception of the law of righteousness, but not one which was less genuinely derived from the scriptures. He repudiated the righteousness which was done in selfish expectation of reward, teaching us rather to say, when we have done all that is commanded of us, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which it was our duty to do. But he regards the filial duty of a son of God as not less, but more exacting than the servile performance of the hireling. Except your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. To express his broader and profounder conception of the law, Jesus preferred to use the phrase God's will. The will of God, however it might be ascertained, was his absolute rule of duty. How conformable his will was to the will of God, we learn from such a saying as, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to accomplish his work. And yet even in the same Gospel of St. John, we see Jesus' will contrasted with the Father's will. For I am come down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. When Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? We see how stern a conflict he had with his own will in view of the supreme duty of death. His willingness to die is expressed as a conquest of his own will when he prays, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine, be done. The cross, which is the witness of Jesus's sublime sense of duty, is the highest symbol of obedience and duty for us. The epistle to the Hebrews says, Though he was a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, 
he became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation the will of god which jesus accepted as his rule he enjoins upon his disciples as the only criterion of conduct and as the condition of entrance into the kingdom this thought is so essential that he incorporates it in the formula which his disciples were constantly to repeat the words which he taught them for a pattern of prayer and for the regulation of desire when we pray thy will be done as in heaven so on earth it is normally the expression of our ardent desire for to our faith the will of god represents the utmost conceivable blessedness for us and for all this marks the height of our attainment but progress in this direction is conditioned by the fact that in our human experience the will of god is constantly making itself felt as duty by opposing our will and spurring us onward though the cross has been sealed upon our forehead in baptism though we have voluntarily embraced it in our mature confession of christ it is ever asserting itself anew as a cross that is as an instrument of torture and death when we are most sure that it is our sign of triumph it is so very hard to be a christian because at each step in the path of duty we meet a new test and where we looked for crowns to fall we find the tugs to come that's all we can often say thy will be done as a genuine expression of our desire but in the experience of a life of duty there must come black moments when our utmost is to say nevertheless not my will but thine be done that however is victory the path of perfection is paved by the conquest of desire jesus reigns from the tree and he justifies his rule by his own royal regard for duty end of section seven